Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia Success Podcast, where we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. On this show, I work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to this episode of Anesthesia Success. I'm very pleased to be joined by a special guest today, Dr. Megan Lanefall. Dr. Lanefall is an Associate Professor of Anesthesiology and Critical Care at University of Pennsylvania. She also has a Master's in Health Policy Research. And I'm inviting her here today because she is one of a handful taking on a leading role in the anesthesia department's uh, efforts to prepare for and address the coronavirus here in Philadelphia. So Dr. Lanefall, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So for starters, I'm curious, what's the what's the climate like among your anesthesiology peers? Does it feel like you're kind of bracing for impact or is it, you know, still preparing or, or what, what are the conversations like right now? I think it's all of the above. You know, I think our MO is to be pretty calm and collected. And I think sure. we're we're trying to draw on that that professional identity. At the same time, I think we know or have a good sense of what's coming. And so we're trying to plan for every possible contingency. But because there are so many contingencies here, that that's pretty hard. Absolutely. Um, so as somebody who is also uh, having my own uh, business as, as a financial person attached to the current events, it's, it's very difficult to separate yourself from the news and the headlines and even the medical implications of the things happening out there among the conversations among your colleagues. So I'm curious, you know, I'm closely watching like med Twitter to get updates on things. And frankly, I told myself today, I've got to cut the cord. There's nothing that's going to happen in the next 24 hours. That's going to, it's going to, you know, change the way I need to live my life. And I need to separate myself a little bit. So I'm curious for someone like you in a position of leadership, who is, it's important for you to both disseminate and to take in information. How do you think about that balance of, trying to know what's going on, but also trying to maintain the sanity and the, the collectedness that you just, that you just mentioned. You know, I'm not sure there's, um, there's a skill that comes with being able to take in a lot of knowledge, assimilate it, distill it down and then share it with other people. And I think of that as something that I do well, but I can't really explain how I do it. Yeah. I think that unlike previous challenges, we actually have too much information right now, not, too little. Right. And so I think one of the central challenges here is in figuring out what's real, what's not, what's relevant, what's not, and um, really focusing on what we can control. So I think that's sort of how I approach the onslaught of information is some of it's good to know, some of it's interesting, but only a subset of that is is immediately relevant to what I need to do. Right. Makes sense. Um, maybe you could share a little bit about some of the the preparations that that the the anesthesia department and your colleagues across the specialties are currently enacting here in Philadelphia. Sure. So I think our overall goal is to be able to manage the surge of patients that we think is coming in. From an anesthesia perspective, we're really concerned with airways because we do a lot of securing of airways, and that's understandably a very high risk procedure for us and for the people that help us. And then we're also concerned for caring for the patients that may come to surgery. Now, certainly COVID-19 is not primarily a surgical disease, but people can develop issues that require surgery. And people who are asymptomatic coming in for surgery for some other reason could certainly have COVID and spread it. So those are the two main arenas that we're concerned about as an anesthesia department. 
but we also have a large division of critical care anesthesiologists. So there's a subset of us that are really concerned about ongoing care in the ICU. So we're involved in that work as well. Got it. When did you first start having conversations about these things to, to think that, man, there might be something coming that we need to brace for? Sure. So I think all of us have been following this at some level since the word first started coming out of China in January. Yeah. I think our efforts really ramped up this month in March. So today is March 18th. Um, I was on service last week. So I was on service starting the whatever the day it was. I don't know the days anymore than nine. <laughs> The Friday before that, we were talking about things. So I'd say probably from the beginning of March is when we started to say, okay, look, things are happening. There's a really clear presence in Seattle. There's community yeah. spread in Seattle, and we know it's coming our way. So I think that's when we really started to stand up teams that would look at this and think about how we would start to respond. Yeah. What do you view as the biggest uh, obviously, this is a multifactorial situation with a lot of challenges and a lot of potential contingencies. But as you're thinking about anesthesiologists and critical care responsibilities, is there maybe one or two key challenges that rise to the top where you're thinking, these are the things that I'm really addressing and working on, focusing on to make sure that we're as prepared as we can be? Yeah, I think there are probably three things that are at the top of my mind. The first one is safety of the staff. And safety, really, when I think about that, I'm thinking about personal protective equipment, because we have a lot of reports out of China, out of Italy, out of Canada, out of the UK that give us a sense of what we should be doing to protect our staff. And I have a very real concern that we don't have enough equipment to do that. Now, currently, we're okay. Mm -hmm. But we know that there are shortages around the world of N95 masks. Yeah. We know that the powered air purifying respirators, um, we have some, we don't have enough, we have a lot on order and we think they'll be coming in soon. But these are resources that are either finite or they're reusable, but it takes some time to process them. So we're not, we're not at the point where people aren't able to protect themselves, but that's one of my main worries is being able to ensure the safety of, of our staff. The second piece is being able to care for patients appropriately. And Thankfully, everything that we're hearing about this condition is that for those people that require intensive care, they develop acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, but it tends to be not the most difficult type of ARDS to manage. Now, this is said from the perspective of a critical care person who manages these people every day that not that difficult ARDS is still critical <laughs> illness, right? It's still right. requiring life support. Right. So I, I don't mean to minimize it in any way. But once you get them intubated, once you have them in an ICU, you can manage them with low tidal volume ventilation and high PEEP and proning and all the things that we do for people who have ARDS. And so we think that part is not the most challenging part. There's just a limitation in the number of ICU beds. There's a limitation in the number of vents and there's a limitation in ICU staff. Yeah. So that's what worries me with the, with the care of these patients, especially looking at projections for how many critically ill patients we may have and the comparison of that to the number of vents and ICU beds that we have. Right. And then the third issue is it actually goes back to the staff thinking about how to keep the right numbers of staff and the right people in the right places, mm -hmm. because it only takes a few people being ill or being quarantined to completely upend your staffing model. So we're seeing that in some hospitals in the U.S., and we're trying to figure out what we would do if certain people went out and how we would fill in for them. 
Makes sense. Are you are you finding that you're coming up with potential alternative uh, clinical care models in light of the PPE shortages? And I, I just read something that's like, do we have a way to, you know, do like swap out IVs without going into a room, maybe having like a longer tube or something? I don't know if there are those no, types of things that you're thinking about or, or if that's in play at all. We're definitely thinking about that. We haven't thought about the long IV tubing. I think there'd be too much dead space. Yeah, I don't um, know if that actually works. This is not innovative. This it's is not medical advice from the CFP. To I hear you. No, no, this is an interesting idea. Certainly, we're trying to minimize the number of staff that are in a room taking care of people who have this condition. And so we're thinking of a primary nurse who's got full protective equipment, who's in the room really most of the time with the door closed with um, an attending physician and maybe a fellow or a resident who also goes in as needed um, or an advanced practice provider, basically someone who can write orders. Respiratory therapist, especially for those patients who need respiratory support, but that's kind of it. So um, one of the interesting things that's come up for us is for patients who were vented, our hospital policy is that respiratory therapists are the only ones who can touch the vent. And that's for safety, right? Because they train on these machines, they know how to use them, they're expert in that. And even though physicians place the orders, um, we aren't always up to date on the exact equipment and all the widgets and the knobology. Sure. Right now we're looking at ways to figure out if we can relax that just for these patients. Mm -hmm. So if the vent is turned in such a way that you can see it from the door, can the nurse that's in the room actually make the adjustments with the respiratory mm. therapist sort of going, yes, no, no, that one, that one over right. there, so that they don't actually have to go into the room. Got it. We're also looking at the use of telemedicine to help yeah. augment our decision making. And so clearly they can be at a distance and they're not at risk. So that's, that's going to be helpful too. I'm curious how you've been navigating, and if you've bumped into this at all, the, the constraints regulatorily with HIPAA, JCO, and some of the you know privacy types of questions that come in with telemedicine. And like, wow, it would be great if we could, it would be great if we could FaceTime somebody who had a cough and we're wondering if they were positive, rather than having them stand in a long line with a bunch of other potentially positive people. Right. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. So thankfully, most of the resources that we are using are in house. Okay. And so everybody's sort of the un the same HIPAA umbrella. So our telemedicine group is in-house, so that's not an issue with us. Um, in terms of seeing patients virtually, we have something called Penn Medicine On Demand, which is a, a in-house service that are staffed by telemedicine nurse practitioners, and they can FaceTime with um, with patients and talk to them. Okay. You can also set up appointments for them to get drive-through testing, but right now that's very much a homegrown within our health system sort of setup, but we're very cognizant that we don't want to create a situation where we're exposing people to risk yeah. as they're trying to figure out how to, how to get care. Do you view this as a time at which it may make sense? or there are certain segments of either HIPAA or something similar where, where we need to relax things intentionally, strategically for a period of time to try to get care to the most people possible without endangering the healthcare professionals? Without a doubt, yes. Yeah. I think we need to look at ways to relax privacy regulations in a way that is strategic, in a way that, that facilitates care without creating an undue burden on patients in terms of interrupting their privacy. But we are in a very, very unusual time. This right. is sort of a generation-defining moment, a crisis for us. And we have to get out of our heads the idea that this is normal. This yeah. is not normal. And so... Um, bureaucracy is great for keeping things sort of on track and keeping people following rules, but it can also get in the way when you need to be nimble. 
Yeah. And so if there's somebody who needs to come in from another health system, you know, I need to know what their medical history is and I don't have time to get to sign a form to get faxed over to make sure that everything's okay according to HIPAA. Yeah. So anything that legislators can do, the policymakers can do to help facilitate care would be useful. You mentioned one of the constraining factors being the, the ICU beds, ventilators. Um, that's obviously a bit of a discrete universe of like, we've got so many rooms, we've got so many beds, you know, I'm sure there's some extent to which you can maybe augment them by like grabbing the vents from other places. Uh, but, but there, it's You're being very creative. Yes. Yeah. So I'm curious, what does creativity look like in, in this area? Creativity means looking at any type of machine that can ventilate a human whether it's meant to do that or not. Yeah. <laughs> so certainly we have our mechanical ventilators. There are mechanical ventilators really built into every anesthesia machine that's in the operating room. So you effectively have more ventilators that way. Hmm. And going back to what I mentioned about this being sort of a quote unquote typical ARDS, you don't need really fancy vent settings. Yeah. The anesthesia machines are not fancy vents, so they can do sort of basic stuff, but that, that's probably enough. We're talking to children's hospitals because children, thankfully, aren't being hit very hard by this. So if that continues to be the case, then that may be a way that we could to, could ventilate people. We're even talking to the vet school. I mean, anything, because they do surgeries, they have anesthesia machines, they have ventilators. So really anything. It's funny you say that. I was just thinking PenVet is like right across the street. I wonder if, uh, you know, if that if that had hit the radar at all. Yep, we're talking to him. Oh my gosh, that's so crazy. We're, we're in very strange times right now. Uh, yeah, I mean, you you had this phrase, a generation-defining time, and I uh, more and more it really seems like that's what it is. The more we hear about this, the more we think it's going to be months of yeah. disruption, whether that's financial, social, healthcare-related. This is This is a big deal. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about cultivating, um, you know, obviously anesthesiologists are as a class of professional, I would say among the best of people oh. who are going to remain, remain calm under fire, so to speak. Um, so, so this comes with the, the person, but how do you work to sort of continue to cultivate that spirit of like, we can do this, control what you can control. Don't worry about the rest among your peers to try to. I mean, this is crazy. And I'm looking at, you know, yeah. my wife is like just wrapping up maternity leave. She's going to be headed back next week. Into, and she was saying like, she might be rotating into the ICU even this week, which is her vacation week, just because things are crazy. So sure. how do you, what would you want to tell the people out there listening right now who are looking at, you know, what's happening abroad and listening to some of this and thinking, uh, who are just intimidated? So I would say that's normal. I would say that's a very reasonable response. I think that if you have the choice between curling up into a ball and doing something, do something. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's natural to want to curl up into a ball, but I think there are some very real things that we can do that actually all of us can do to help, whether we're healthcare providers or not. Yeah. But within a healthcare setting, there are some things we have control over. And so I think concentrating our efforts on the things that we're able to do and helping people understand how important they are, how much we're part of a team, whether that's thanking the environmental services professionals, whether that's make, checking in with people who aren't in the leadership team. And I do that very deliberately. I'll yeah. reach out to people who um, are in the rank and file I haven't talked to in a while and I just go, hey, 
are we missing anything? Like, how are you doing? What's going on? Yeah. I'll just kind of randomly walk into workspaces and talk to people. So I think reinforcing that idea that we're all in this together is really important. Helping people understand that we don't have all the answers right now. So, you know, it's not my saying, but I say we're, we're, build, we're flying the plane as we're building it or we're building the plane as we're flying it. I guess that's the way you say it. Um, we, there's a lot we don't know, but yeah. we're being very transparent with our teams about what we do know, what we don't know. And when something changes to try to let them know, look, we know this is different than what we told you yesterday, but, but this is what we think is the right answer now. Can you take me, give me a little snapshot into one of those conversations you had with maybe somebody you don't normally interact with and you're saying like, listen, what's going on? What are you seeing and thinking and feeling and how's this working for you? Yeah, so I, I went into, um, there are two main hospitals where I work and I went into one of them in the workroom and there weren't a lot of people there because it was the middle of the day and they're all working. Um, but I said, I ran into one of them and I just said, what's up? And she's like, oh, I'm fine. I was like, no, like, what's up? Like, how are you doing? How are things? And she kind of told me about an experience she had when she was covering airways and wanted to go down and get personal protective equipment just to have on her person. Mm -hmm. And some of the difficulties she had in, in acquiring that because we, we tend to link up this personal protective equipment to one particular patient. So if you're caring for a patient, it's easy to get, but if it's a, I just want to have it because I know I'm at high risk of going into one of these procedures, then it's a little bit harder. And so she and I were just talking about that experience, but it's interactions like those where you let people know that they're being heard and that you really care about them and that you'll, you'll help them as much as you can. Yeah. I'm curious, has this impact? So I'm not sure if you're, if you're married to a physician, I'm obviously nope. not a physician, but I'm curious, does this impact? Like, what are you doing when you go home? Like, do, do you continue to interact with each other? Or like, if you were to get sick, are you going to like stay in the basement while your rest of the family's upstairs or, or how, I'm guess I guess I'm asking like what should I be doing right now? <laughs> right. No, that's a that's a good question that we don't have a good answer to. Um, when I was clinical last week, I would make sure that I left my white coat at home, that I left um, all my sort of hospital soiled clothes at home, take a shower when I get home. Um, now for the last three days, I've been working from home, um, but I'm sure I'll be headed into the hospital at some point soon. Yeah. I heard about an ER doc that's. Sequestered in the garage. Um, there's an wow. Emory doc who, um, because he's working with these people on the front lines and his wife is on maternity leave, he deliberately self um, isolated in the garage. And so she like drops off food at the door for him to eat, but then wow. they don't really oh see each other. Gosh. I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I wish I could tell you what we're supposed to be doing. I feel okay. I wash my hands all the time. I tell my kids to wash their hands all the time. My husband does the same thing. If I were to start to get sick, I would probably distance myself from them. And right now I'm in an attic um, and that's sort of my workspace. Okay. But it has a bed, it has a bathroom. So I would probably just hang out here, but I have the luxury to do that. I know right. a lot of people don't. Right. Um, Wash your hands. That's yeah, I have washed my hands more in the last like two weeks than like the three months prior. I, I, I probably should wash my hands more to begin with, but I'm like paranoid about it now for sure. Stop touching your face. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard with the beard. Yeah. And the glasses. I'll, I'll try to figure something out. Um, have there been, have you been in any meetings where somebody said something and you're like, this is an amazing idea. We need to take this idea and share it with everyone who maybe is asking a similar question right now. Hmm. 
or any other like best practice or things that you're doing to scale capacity that you think is is worth you know sharing with this the the anesthesia community we definitely have had some revelations around the talent that we have already in our institution and so i remember being at a meeting where someone was talking about our crnas or certified registered nurse anesthetists and someone goes wait they're all icu nurses because that's part of their training as they come up and you know of course we know this like if someone had said what is the training pathway for a crna we could all say it Mm -hmm. but it's easy to forget in the moment when you're thinking about oh look i only have so many icu nurses and if they call out then i'm in trouble and then someone goes wait no we have like a hundred people, I think we have more than that at this point, who are all ICU nurses who could be deputized to do this if they needed to. Um, and so I think we've we've had multiple situations where we have these like, oh, wait, we could do that or we could do this thing. Or the most recent one today was putting the respiratory therapist or a respiratory therapist in our telemedicine hub hmm. so that they could serve as a resource to the 200 critical care beds that we have. Because hmm. our respiratory therapists, we don't have a lot of them, right? They serve a lot of different patients. So we could potentially simultaneously keep one of them off the front line so that they don't get infected, but then they could also help care for so many different patients. So it's things like that um, that I found really interesting. Yeah, awesome. Have you, I'm sure you've given thought to this, but what about when, you know, some healthcare professionals inevitably start to get infected? Are, is there a, pl- I know in Italy, or I guess else, I'm trying to think of all the different places I've sort of been tracking, but there are places where it, they segment the, the uh, infected, you know, uh, doctors and nurses to do COVID only. And then they partition the hospital itself to say, if you're uh, negative for COVID, then you're somebody who can care for the negative patients and vice versa. It, are there those kinds of conversations happening as well? Only the beginnings of those. Yeah. And certainly... We've talked about in sort of offhand discussions, oh, once somebody has COVID and they've recovered, then they should take care of the COVID patients. And I think we're open to that. I think the challenge is that we're starting to see now some evidence that people can be reinfected. Hmm. We also know that there are two different strains of the COVID virus. And so it's not clear that if you get infected with one, that you couldn't get infected with the other one. So I think that that logic makes sense at some level, but it probably falls apart when you, when you dig down into the immunology of it. But there's also the issue that you have so many people that are asymptomatic that even in your quote unquote COVID negative patients, you probably still may have some circulating. There's going to be a point at which you have so many people, you know, in Italy, there are places where it's 30% or more of the patients in the entire hospital have it. So um, it's hard to imagine that you could effectively keep them in one, one part. Right. Is there anything else you'd like to add or any other thoughts or insights you want to share uh, before I let you go, Dr. Lanefall? I appreciate all the um, all the energy and enthusiasm and the love that's been sent toward healthcare providers. I'm, I'm following med Twitter as well. And certainly I get the sense that people understand what we're facing and they want to help um, in any way possible. And I think that I really, really appreciate that. For the people that are just coming up in their careers, I would say look to see how people are responding to this. Look to see how leaders are responding. Yeah. Try to learn about what you think is good leadership behavior. Maybe what you don't want to do. But these you're you're going to be battle tested. All of us are going to be battle tested in the next weeks to months. Yeah. So yeah. um yeah, try to try to take some time and sit and reflect and I've been I've been journaling 
and keeping an archive. I take screenshots of the Johns Hopkins website every day. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Um, and it's amazing even just to go back a week and to look at it. Yeah. I, it's, it just blows your mind. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking that today I was taking Calvin for a walk. I hadn't gotten any vitamin D in like four days. Calvin's our son. And so I was like, I need to get out of the house. So I was walking and just thinking about leadership and and thinking about, I wonder how we're going to look back at this time and the leadership questions that arise. And, um, you know, I, I I do think this is a time when leaders are going to be formed and where leadership is going to be built. And what you said at the beginning, like you can either curl up into a ball or you can like get to work. I think that is absolutely, you know, it's a leader can-do attitude and something to which people are going to gravitate. And I was thinking, even for myself in my community, as a member of a family and as a member of my block and as a member of, you know, the citizenry of Philadelphia, like, what does it look like to be a leader, to be a neighbor? Those are really important questions for all of us to be asking right now and trying to say, we can't control everything. We can't control the headlines. We can't control how high that big red scary number on the top left side of that screen yes. on the, the Hopkins yes. webpage is going to go. But... We can do what we can do and try to encourage one another. And so let me take this opportunity to thank you and all of your colleagues for all the work that you're doing to prepare and, and to continue to, as a society, like work to protect the, 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 the well-being of the citizenry of this city. And um, I, we're, we're just really grateful for, for what you're doing. So thank you for thank joining you. me today, Dr. Lanefall. My pleasure. Good luck. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to anesthesiasuccess.com where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesiology and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I would also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on the Anesthesia Success Podcast.